And our children through fifth grade are invited to attend Children's Church. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Hey, if you have your Bible with you, would you please open to the book of Micah? We're going to be in Micah chapter 6 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, let me encourage you to open up one of those pew Bibles. And if you're new to the Bible, uh, you'll find Micah chapter 6 starting on page 826 uh, in that pew Bible. Um, A running joke uh, around the office the last few months has been how Pastor Steve has somehow been absent on the Sundays. Uh, Not absent, but just out of service leadership on the Sundays when we've had large passages with a lot of names to read in the book of Ezra. And I think he redeemed himself this morning. It was really fantastic. It was great. Uh, I love that we're <laughs> we applaud your literacy. Good job. Um, I love that we're a church that loves all of the Word of God, including Ezra chapter 10, and it's called a holiness. It's called a first commandment faithfulness. Uh, I'm glad that we can read that, especially on this day, because it shines a lot of light and a depth of understanding to Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Uh, if I had surveyed the church prior to our study of the book of Micah, and I had asked, uh, what's your favorite Bible verse in the book of Micah? Hands down, uh, just about every respondent would have said, Micah 6.8. I love Micah 6.8. That's our favorite. Not even the whole verse, but just a portion of it. Act justly, love mercy or faithfulness, as we'll read today, and walk humbly with your God. We love that. My family loves this verse. It's important to us personally for a number of reasons uh, that are for stories for another day. But, um, but this verse has taken on real meaning for a lot of Christian people, Uh, so much so that maybe it's lost some of its meaning. It's become very familiar to us. It's it's sold on signs that you can decorate your Christian living room with. You can find them at Hobby Lobby, maybe at restaurants like Cracker Barrel. You can find Act Justly, Love Mercy, Walk Humbly with Your God all over the place. My fear is that it's become the Christian equivalent of Live, Laugh, Love. It's just affirmations on a wall, and we've lost the power, the dynamite, uh, the the intense fire of this verse, because who speaks Micah 6.8? It's not God, it's the prophet, and when the prophet speaks, he speaks fire. Who does he speak it to? He speaks it to God's people. And what is happening that he has to say these words to them? I'll tell you what's not happening. They're not acting justly, and they're not loving mercy, and they're not walking humbly with their God. Micah 6, 8, that we've come to love so much, is not a verse of just mere positive affirmations. It is fire from God for a people who are not walking with him, a people in spiritual ruin. These are the words of the prophet, and they grip us by the ears and by the hearts so that we would examine our lives and we would walk faithfully with God. You see, these words don't find 
God's people at the apex of their faithfulness, but rather deep in a pit of spiritual ruin. That's who Micah 6, 1 through 8 is for. It's for people like us who may be on the precipice of spiritual ruin or in the depths of it. Now, Micah chapter 6 begins the third and final section of the book of Micah. If you've been with us in this study, you might recall that the book of Micah is, has a three-part structure to it. And each of these three parts has a similar pattern of words of judgment followed by words of grace. So we've seen that pattern twice now. The, the second cycle ends at the end of chapter 5 with God's promise to purify his people. Now we begin the third and final cycle of the book of Micah. And chapter 6 opens up with these fiery words of judgment. Uh, and so here we have a courtroom scene in Micah chapter 6. If you'll keep that in mind, it'll help you through this morning study and next Sunday study as well. All of chapter 6 is one big courtroom scene. In this courtroom scene, God is both plaintiff and judge. He is the one with charges against his own people. His own people are the defendants. He has charges against them. He has a verdict. He's the judge who will determine the outcome of the case. And in this courtroom drama, the verdict is already settled. It doesn't hang in the balance. So if the verdict is already settled, and if the verdict is already negative, then what's the point of this whole scene? For whose benefit do we have Micah 6, 1 through 8? Well, Micah 6, 1 through 8 is a warning to believers against falling into spiritual ruin. If we remember the audience, their spiritual condition at the time that these words landed on their ears, then we find the current audience for this passage as well. Those who are broken spiritually or those who are on the precipice of that sort of spiritual break. And I wonder, have you ever experienced that? In your walk with Jesus, have you ever been in that place where you are just utterly broken spiritually? It might look like a couple of things. It, it could look like just indulging every appetite. You're driven by what you want without concern for the consequences of the people around you. And so your ruin might come from just chasing after your flesh. But this ruin can come in another way. It can come not just from the reckless pursuit of irreligiosity. It can come from a rigid legalism. Spiritual ruin can look very religious. Your morality is buttoned up. You, you, you have strict regulations by which you lead your life. You have very rigid religious practices. But in all of that, God does not have your heart. You're spiritually ruined. Perhaps worst of all, it'd be better for you if you just chased your flesh. At least then you would know how greatly you're separated from God. But instead, legalism covers up this ruin so that you feel religious, you act religious, but your heart is no closer to God's than anybody else on this planet. Spiritual ruin can look like a lot of different things, but this passage is both preventative also prescriptive. It's a promise of grace to everyone who would heed the prophet's voice. 
And so my goal today with Micah 6, 1 to 8 is to lead you away from or out of spiritual ruin. And Micah gives us three tips to keep us in the grace and the blessing of God. Follow along with me as I read Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your complaint. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains and enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people and he will argue it against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? Or how have I wearied you? Testify against me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam ahead of you. My people, remember what King Balak of Moab proposed? What Balaam, son of Beor, answered him? And what happened from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts? What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offspring of my body for my own sin? Mankind, he has told each of you what is good And what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. If you're going to avoid spiritual ruin, if you're going to come out of spiritual ruin, if we're going to live in the grace and the blessing of God, then Micah implores us there are three things we must not forget. We forget these things, we are in the pit without God. What must we not forget? First of all, don't forget God's faithfulness. The first section of this passage, verses 1 through 5, Micah implores us, don't forget God's faithfulness. Our courtroom scene begins with Micah assembling witnesses. He's going to fill the courtroom, and he calls to witness the proceedings, uh, all of creation. Hey, mountains, get in here. Hills. The very foundations of the earth, all of you things created by God, all of creation that does His bidding, get in here because you're about to hear about another aspect of God's creation that does not obey His word, that does not do His bidding. He calls all of creation to stand as witnesses to the proceedings. And then the court scene uh, unfolds. In the Old Testament, we have multiple instances of God bringing charges against his people in scenes that are very similar to this. You can find similar courtroom scenes in Deuteronomy 32, Psalm chapter 50, Jeremiah chapter 2, as well as Hosea chapter 4. The scene begins with God uh, not bringing accusations against his people. That's what we would expect. We would, in our normal courtroom scenes, we, we would expect God to say, here's what I've got against you, this, 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 and this. But that's not it. God starts with a defense of his own character. In verse 3, he says, my people, what have I done to you? Or how have I wearied you? Testify against me. 
It's as if God is saying to them, explain what I've done to cause your rebellion. Why have you rejected me? Have I not loved you? Have I not cared for you? Have I not been God to you? Like, what are your charges against me? But before they can answer, God begins to rehearse evidence of his faithfulness to his people. He gives them several different aspects of his faithfulness. He begins in verse 4 by reminding them of his redemption of sinful and enslaved Israel. So in verse 4 he says, Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. Now this is really interesting language on God's part because the people that Micah is speaking to, this is not the generation that was in Egypt. But God speaks to them as if they were in Egypt, as if they lived through the plagues, as if they left Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. But no, all of that happened 700 years before this audience that Micah is speaking to. Why is that? Well, it's because there's not an expiration date on redemption. The redemptive work that God did for their ancestors 700 700 years before stands for them on this very day. What God did for their ancestors in Egypt, He did also for them. He's the God who redeemed then. He's the God who redeems now. The second thing God reminds them of is the leaders that He provided for them. Uh, As they exit Egypt, they do so with Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Moses was a unique mediator, received intimate and direct revelation from God. Aaron served as the high priest overseeing Israel's worship. Miriam exercised prophetic and liturgical gifts. She led people in worship. So the issue of leadership has come up repeatedly in the book of Micah. Over and over again, he has called out wicked leaders who prey on people for their own benefit. And so with this fresh topic in mind, God says to his people, remember the leaders that I have given you. It's not as if I got you out of Egypt and then left you leaderless to just wander in the wilderness. That would be a bondage of another kind. Instead, I gave you godly people to lead you and direct you to the fulfillment of my promises. The third thing God reminds his people of is his protection over them. So then in verse 5, he says, My people, remember what King Balak of Moab proposed? What Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. You're familiar with this story, most likely. The story is found in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. And there the wicked King Balak, who hated Israel and wanted to destroy them, he summons the wicked prophet Balaam. And he says, Balaam, here's what I want you to do. When Israel marches by, just hurl curses on them. Just pour on them this wickedness. And Balaam, who was a prophet for hire, he's like, all right, here's my cost for curses. I'll do that. And so he goes, takes his seat. He's ready to hurl the curses on them. But when he opens his mouth, only blessings come out. And so God reminds his people of his protection over them. It's as if God's saying, do you remember that? Do you think it would have been better if I had not protected you from Balak and from Balaam? Do you think it would have been better if I had just let curses come on you from the wicked? But no, God in his faithfulness protected his people. 
And then finally, God reminds them of the promise that he fulfilled. Another sign of his evidence or of his faithfulness is his fulfilled promises. So at the end of verse 5, he says, remember what happened from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal. Your Bible most likely says Shittim. Remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. I mean, it would be really handy if we had a super cool map right now to take a look at. So take a look at this super cool map. Here, you can see Shittim on the right. And you can see Gilgal upper left. And what cuts those two in half north to south? It's the Jordan River. So what happened from Shittim to Gilgal? I'll tell you what happened. This is the front door to the promised land. God parted the waters of the Jordan River at flood stage, and God's people entered the promised land on dry ground. Remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal? I threw the waters open. I gave you access to the promised land. I fulfilled my promise to you. I brought you out of Egypt. I gave you leaders, protected you along the way, and I fulfilled my word to you to give you a land that you could live in and flourish in. And why did God do all these things? Why did he fulfill his word to Israel over and over again at the end of verse 5, very last line? So that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. In verse 5, he says, I've done these things so that you would remember and you would acknowledge. Right? You're supposed to remember these, not just as mere pieces of data or just as random stories, but as the combined evidence of God's grace that requires their repentance and their obedience. Israel, what has God been to you? He's been faithful, and the result of His faithfulness should be repentance and obedience, but instead it's been rebellion. You see, to remember God's faithfulness it means more than just to recollect these stories. It's a remembrance that grips you. It's a remembrance that moves you. It's a remembrance that drives you. It owns your soul when you remember your sin and you remember God's grace. It's a remembrance that drives you forward in faithfulness to Him. And why is it that God tells these sorts of stories, stories that are 700 years old by the time Micah rehearses them again. Why not something more contemporary to Micah's audience? Well, the argument would go like this. If God rescued his people from Pharaoh's grip, protected them from wicked kings and wicked prophets, and fulfilled his promise to them, then won't he be able to handle any evil that history throws at them, Assyria and Babylon included. So, Israel, you, you stand on the precipice of destruction right now, enemy nation coming, but God's track record is faithful. He cares for His people, protects them. The battle is the Lord's. He'll do that for you as well. So what happens when God's people forget the faithfulness of God? Well, the the danger of forgetting his faithfulness, his redemption, his leadership, his protection, his promise is that all of a sudden every destructive act becomes possible. Every sin becomes desirable. When God is not leading us in these ways, we live for our flesh. We do what we want without any thought of God. So if you want to avoid spiritual ruin, if you want to come out of that spiritual brokenness, don't forget God's faithfulness. There's a second thing we must not forget in this passage. Don't forget God's character. 
Don't forget he's faithful and don't forget what he is like, his character, verses 6 and 7. So God has argued his case, a part of his case, and now in verses 6 and 7, he steps aside. God's no longer the speaker. Now Israel responds, or God's people, they're the speakers in these two verses. These two verses are made up of four accusatory questions of God. So God steps aside, my people, the microphone is yours, and they just, they rattle off these four accusatory questions towards God. The questions are the equivalent of them asking, well, what do you want from us? What would make you happy? How can we get you to simmer down and just let's get back to normal, whatever that is? These four questions are all liturgical. What, what that means is they're all focused on acts of worship. So in what ways could we worship you so as to make you happy and to get you less angry? Another thing to notice about these four questions is that they ascend in their costliness. They start with a simple act of worship and end with an intense, costly act of worship. Look at them with me. Verse 6, God's people respond and they say, What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before Him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offspring of my body for my own sin? That's Israel's response to God. God says, what have I done to you? And they say, how can we pay you off? What do you want from us? You want a burnt offering? You want a baby? Whatever. We'll do this for you just to get you off of our backs. The people suggest five different acts of worship that might appease their angry God. First of all is burnt offerings. That's not nothing. A burnt offering uh, means that the sacrifice, the food or the animal, whatever the thing is, it's incinerated. There is a peace offering where you would offer the food, offer the thing to God, and then you would later eat it. But a burnt offering, you're not eating that. It's just nothing but ash at the end of it. Well, then they say, well, what about year-old calves? A year-old calf, that's an expensive sacrifice. You just spent a year's worth of money to feed and care for that baby cow, and now you're going to kill it as a sacrifice to God. That's a pricey sacrifice. They say, what about thousands of rams? King David offered a thousand rams in 1 Chronicles chapter 20. Solomon outdid that in 1 Kings chapter 8. Well, then they just begin to get ridiculous. What about 10,000 rivers of oil? Just, is that what you want, God? You want 10,000 rivers filled with holy oil to make you happy? And then finally, more ridiculous than 10,000 rivers of oil is child sacrifice. Should I give my firstborn for my transgression? What's wrong with these suggestions? Everything. There's not a thing right in these questions. They've got everything wrong. You see, this is how you treat a false god. This is not how you treat Yahweh. When you're dealing with Baal, you, you, might, you might buy him off with trinkets, but not Yahweh. That's not the god he is. Also, they belittle God as if he can be appeased with gifts. They lower his character so that he's a God that only cares about stuff, cares about trophies. Also, Israel fails to address 
their sin before God. They think the problem is God doesn't have stuff. That's not the problem at all. Imagine someone walked up to you and they kicked you in the leg. And then they gave you a piece of candy and said, sorry about that. And then they kicked you in the leg again and then they walked away. Well, what does the candy accomplish? Nothing. They haven't changed the behavior. They haven't addressed the offense. And that's what Israel is doing here. Sin against God will give you some treats. And then we're just going to go back to our sin. You leave us alone and just do us well. They've forgotten his character. In Psalm chapter 50, God says clearly, in a song that they sung, he says, I don't need your sacrifices. In Psalm 51, we learn that God desires a broken spirit rather than many sacrifices. In Isaiah chapter 1, God says he's offended by meaningless sacrifices. Look, the sacrificial system wasn't for God, it was for the people. But when we forget God's character, when we lower Him to something more like us and less like the God of the Bible, well, then we're going to deal with God in ways that are offensive to Him. We'll assume that He wants church attendance, or He wants our money, or He wants our prayers, or He wants our good vibes and our good intentions. He wants your heart. Above everything else, he wants your heart. You thought you could just throw a song his way and he'd be okay. Not quite. You've forgotten God's character. He's not some egomaniacal deity who can just be bought off with trinkets. He's your heavenly father who loves you. He wants the broken relationship between you and him to be made whole once again. That can only happen when you turn from your sin and you turn your life to him, you walk in his grace. What do you imagine God is like? Can I just say that the God or gods of our imaginations are terrifying deities. They are petty just like us. They have to be bought off. They get upset over things we do wrong. And so then that God or God's lowercase g, those gods, they, when we do things wrong, they do wrong things to us. But when we do things good, they do good things to us. It's this sort of weird Christian karma. We take New Age spirituality, we slap Christian labels onto it and, and think if I do well, then the universe, who I also call God, will do me well. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not Christianity. That's not gospel. It's humanism wrapped up with Christian labels. The end of all being is my happiness, my well-being. If, if I do God well, He'll do me well. The, the end of mankind is to be happy and God exists to make me happy. We've forgotten His character. That's not who He is. He's a God who loves us though we are sinners. And He is working our redemption from the Garden of Eden to this day and beyond to make whole the relationship that our sin has broken. The God of creation is compassionate and gracious and holy. He's not a bully to be bargained with. He is the holy God who wants your heart. Don't forget His faithfulness. Don't forget His character. And finally, don't forget God's requirement. Don't forget God's requirement. 
Don't forget what he's done for you. Don't forget who he is. Don't forget what he requires of you as his child. In verse 8, God has spoken. Well, Micah spoke first. He summons the witnesses. And then God spoke his case. And then Israel just, I don't know, they say whatever they say, this nonsense, these questions. And then the last speaker in this scene is the prophet Micah again. And here's what he says in verse 8. Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Mankind, he has told you. When did he tell him? Well, he's told him over and over. There's no lack of God's spoken word recorded for his people. So in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, he told Israel to love him with all their heart, soul, and strength. And in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, he told them to love and serve him. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, he said he desires obedience rather than sacrifice. So these requirements in Micah 6, 8 are not new. It's not as if these were hidden and then all of a sudden just poof, here they are. God's been holding you accountable to this secret thing. That's not it at all. They've known the whole time what God requires of his people. They've been talked about in every generation. And what is it that the Lord requires of his people? Now, when we speak of requirement, we've got to be really careful here. These are not the requirements for salvation. These are the requirements for the saved. These are the requirements for those who live in covenant faithfulness with God. Micah 6 8 is not how we enter the covenant, it's how we live in the covenant. So, what does God require of those who know? His covenant love, His forgiveness, His salvation. The first requirement is to act justly. We first met the concept of justice early in the book of Micah, uh, most prominently in chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. And and let me remind you of what we said on that Sunday when we dealt with Micah chapter 3. Micah said that the, the nation of Judah was guilty of practicing rampant injustice. He said, you abhor justice He said, Jerusalem, the holy city, has been built on injustice. Now, in the Bible, the Hebrew word that's translated as justice is a courtroom word. It's also a care word. As for the courtroom, it means that people are treated equitably, that they are acquitted or they are punished based on the merits of their case. But you'll remember Micah has spoken to the injustice in the court system as he's described judges who are bribed. So on the one hand, it's a courtroom word, but on the other hand, it is a care word. And that care is a requirement on God's people to meet the needs of the vulnerable people among them. This sort of language is all throughout the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 20, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. The next three chapters, chapter 21, 22, 23, are all about how God's people practice justice, how they care for the vulnerable among them. All throughout the book of Deuteronomy, we have this holy trinity of vulnerable people whom God commands His people to take care of. It's widows and orphans and the foreigner among you. That holy trinity of care is a requirement for God's people. So in the Bible, justice has implications not just on a person's everyday life, but also on their spiritual life. Remember, Micah regularly called out prophets who perverted justice by making it harder for people to walk with God. 
So what are we talking about when we talk about the biblical concept of justice? It's really hard for me to put this into a simple definition, so here's a really cheap graphic that I hope will help articulate it. Justice in the Bible sits at the intersection of these four ideas. It's fairness, it's personal accountability, it's corporate responsibility, it's access to God. All four of these found in the book of Micah. Fairness in the book of Micah, it's fairness in the marketplace. You shouldn't deal with people who are dealing with tampered weights, who are, who are dealing with money in inappropriate ways. It's fairness in the courtroom, so that if you should be acquitted of charges, you should be acquitted. Whether you can pay off the judge or not, that justice is rendered. It's personal accountability, so that when charges are brought, that justice is meted out in a proper way. It's corporate responsibility, so that the family of faith, the covenant community, takes care of those who are needy. Instead, there's a, a social system set up in Micah's day where people are victimized by those who are powerful and have money. So that orphans and widows are victimized over and over again. It's also about access to God. And you'll remember Micah's scathing words to false prophets who pervert the good word of God and make it hard for people to access him. So when we're talking about biblical justice, it's the intersection of these four ideas, all of them found very prominently uh, in the book of Micah. Another prominent example of justice in the Old Testament is found in the book of Ruth. A wealthy landowner named Boaz acted justly when he obeyed God's command to leave the edges of his fields unharvested so that people in need could find food for themselves. Ruth was the beneficiary of Boaz's act of justice. Now, the word justice is a powder keg word in our culture today. I am not well-read enough, and I am not an expert on the similarities and the differences between biblical justice and social justice. But I would say this, the word justice belonged to God before it belonged to the world. And so, Christian, do not surrender the word justice to the world any more than you would surrender the word love to the world. God requires His people to act justly, especially those who have met the justice of Christ at the cross. What does God require of His people? To act justly. Second is to love faithfulness or to love mercy. Your Bible probably has the word mercy there. Uh, this translation really bugs me. Uh, because it's an important Hebrew word. We've talked about it over and over. Uh, it's the word hesed, and it's translated in different ways throughout the Old Testament. Uh, it means not just merely mercy, but it also can mean loyal covenant love, faithful love. Uh, you find this word in the opening lines of Psalm chapter 51, verse 1, uh, where, uh, where David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. That's the word, steadfast love. So mercy, that fits. Faithfulness, that fits. Loyal, covenant, steadfast love, that's the idea that's found in this Hebrew word here. So God's people must love covenantal love. And this describes the kind of attitude we should have when we act towards people with justice. This is the attitude that drives the action. It's not enough to just do the act. We must delight in doing it. 
I mean, there's a great example of justice without love just a few pages before Micah in the prophet Jonah. Jonah went to Nineveh and preached the judgment of God. Three days yet and Nineveh shall perish. He acted justly. But he hated the Ninevites. He wanted them to eat the judgment of God. The book of Jonah ends with Jonah pouting because they are spared by the grace of God and because they don't meet God's fiery judgment. He acted justly, but he did not love mercy. He did not love faithfulness. He did not love God's steadfast love. But God requires his people to love steadfast love. The third requirement is that God's people would walk humbly with him. This speaks to our character. We're to be humble before the Lord. We don't take a posture of some of Micah's contemporaries who said things like, well, there's no way God can be angry with us. We're his treasure. We're his chosen ones. God's okay with us. We're not going to be judged in any way. Look, we're to walk humble before God. We know our sin. And what's more, we've experienced the grace of God. To walk humbly with God, to walk Humbly with God, it describes a life of ongoing communion and fellowship rather than just sporadic visits to the divine emergency room. Day in and day out, we are dwelling with God. Act justly, that describes what we do. Love faithfulness, that describes our attitudes when we act. Walk humbly, that describes our character before God. We love this verse, but we treat verse 8 as a rallying cry to the faithful when these are actually words of rebuke to a wicked church. But these words are also a promise of what is possible when those who have been redeemed by God live by God's word. This is the life that enjoys every spiritual blessing. And as much as we hear these words today, God hasn't given up on us yet. There's still grace for us if we will hear the prophet's words and turn back to God's requirement. Micah is standing in front of us, between us and the edge of a cliff, the cliff of spiritual ruin. And he is saying, stop here. Don't, don't go any further. South Shore Baptist Church, look over the edge, and you'll see some of God's people here. Don't come close to the edge. Stay back. And how do we stay back? How do we avoid this spiritual ruin? Micah tells us, don't forget God's faithfulness. Don't forget His character. And don't forget his requirements. And you might say, Cody, I feel like it's too late for me. I've gone too far. I've, I've sinned too much and too greatly. How can that possibly be true? That you've sinned beyond the grace of God? Oh, it shows how much you have forgotten of God's faithfulness. He'll be faithful though you've been unfaithful. While you were still a sinner, He gave His Son to die in your place for your sin. Maybe you've forgotten Him, but He hasn't forgotten you. Your name's engraved on the palms of His hand. Oh, you haven't out the grace of God, not by any stretch. There's hope for you today. So let's remember all that God has done for you. Let's begin by going to the Old Testament. Look, every story of deliverance in the Old Testament belongs to you. It's not about other people. It's about your spiritual ancestors. Their delivery from Egypt is your delivery as well. Their rescue at the Red Sea is your rescue. 
Their, their passage through the Jordan River is your entrance into the promised land. When they were brought back from exile, you're brought back from exile. Not only is all the deliverance of the Old Testament yours, but all that's in the New Testament belongs to you as well. All of God's righteous acts there are yours as well. Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary. He's fully God and fully human. No sacrifice you could give could atone for your sin. And so God the Father gave God the Son to go to the cross and die as the one and only perfect sacrifice for you. Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead and he reigns over all creation. He intercedes for you to keep you from falling away and Jesus is coming again. Every righteous act of God in the New Testament belongs to you. And so you have the Old Testament and you have the New Testament. I wonder if you have your own testament as well, your own story of God's faithful, righteous acts in your life. What about your own personal testimony? Do you remember how you heard the gospel? Do you remember who shared the gospel with you? Who lived it out? Who spoke it to you? Who put the Bible in your hands? Who put Jesus before you? They did that at the urging of God himself. Not by random chance, but because God knows you by name. And he's ordered your steps. And he loves you all the way through. And so he put his word in your ears that it would grip your heart. Do you remember when you heard the gospel? And, and do you remember the depths of your sin when you met Christ at his cross? And do you remember when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, what it felt like to have your sin and shame removed and to live for the things of Christ? God has been so good to you, so faithful to you. And if he is faithful to bring your spiritual ancestors out of Egypt and deliver them from Assyria and Babylon and to conquer death and hell once and for all, won't he also restore you today, brother and sister Christian? Won't he lift you and bring you back? Absolutely he will. These are words of hope and grace in Micah 6 to you. He'll restore you again. He'll set you on a path to live out the requirements that come from the gospel of grace. The Apostle Paul described it this way in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. He said, Now to those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You belong to Christ Jesus. God in His faithfulness has redeemed you and rescued you. And so then we live out the requirement, crucifying our flesh with its passions and desires. Christian, if you're far from God today, you may have all the appearance of spiritual success outwardly, but if God doesn't have your heart, you don't have God. Hear the words of the prophet today and come home. Come back. Lean again into the grace of God and his faithfulness. Let him restore you and pick you up. And I don't know what puts you in the place you are today, what sin you've chased, what requirement you've broken. God knows. And knowing what he knows of you, he offers to you grace and hope this very day. And maybe you don't know Christ as your Savior. Maybe you're here this morning not a follower of Jesus, but you've heard the gospel. You've heard that God is faithful. And I'm telling you today, if you will turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ in faith, you'll be rescued from your sin and shame. And this testimony of God's faithfulness will be your testimony too. Your life changed forever. 
when Jesus Christ is your Savior. So brothers and sisters, since we are justified by faith in Christ, let us act justly. And since we have been saved by the steadfast love of Christ, let us love faithfulness. And since Jesus humbled himself all the way to the cross, let us walk humbly with our God. May we act justly, love faithfulness, and walk humbly with our God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your steadfast love, your faithful love, your covenant love, your loyal love, not a petty and fickle love, not a love that's easily broken by our intense sin and rebellion, but a love that holds your children all the way through. Thank you for this kind of love. And God, we appeal to your love today. We don't have to convince you to love us. We have to recognize that love and lean again into your forgiveness. Lord, restore us. I, I confess our sin. I present before you, Lord, our wicked acts, the ways we have forgotten you and your character and your requirement. We, your people, we, we are guilty of these things. And yet we remember, Lord, that you're faithful when we're unfaithful. Remember your character, you're holy and loving and compassionate. And Lord, we desire to live in your requirements, having tasted of your grace, to walk in your ways. So Lord, bring times of refreshing today. And bring new life to the one who would call on you for salvation today. Lord, make it clear so that Christ would be their Savior and eternal life would be theirs. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.